read our text today is Exodus chapter 14. Um, And we're going to go through that chapter, but there will be a few breaks as we go through it. Um, I'm going to just remind us a little bit of where we've been. Uh, Last week, Pastor Mark talked about that last and final plague, uh, the death of the firstborn, which actually um, spans a couple chapters in Exodus because there's a lot of instructions about how we'll be remembering that plague every year um, for Passover time. And instructions about how to keep watch and what to eat and how long the lamb has to live with you. And there's so much there that I want to stop and talk about and teach, um, but we're going to move. We're going to move to the sea today, all right? So if you've um, not read that cha- those chapters, you feel free to do so as fun, you know, encouraged homework at home. And if you have any additional questions, you can always hit the email button and do an ask the pastor button online. So just um, ask me and I'd be happy to sit down and chat with you about all the fascinating things in those couple of chapters, um, things Pastor Mark spoke about and then a whole bunch that we, we just can't get to because of time. So just a couple reminders as we're getting ready to read Exodus 14, um, that as God is sending Israel out. After that last plague, Pharaoh's heart's kind of finally softened, and he's seen the death of the firstborn. So he's like, all right, get out of here. So God sends them, though, the long way. And he says, I'm concerned if I send them the short way, which would make most geographical sense and also ease of travel sense, that they will get incredibly discouraged because they're going to meet the Philistines, the people of the sea. So I'm going to send them this long way, but I'm going to outfit them as an army. And so God does those things. And they remember, by the way, to take Joseph's bones with them, which is good stuff. So that's really connecting in a beautiful way our Exodus story back to the end of Genesis and remembering Joseph's promise that someday they would come up out of that land. And even though it's been 400 years, they know still where Joseph is buried and they're taking Joseph's bones with them. And then God declares to Moses and the Israelites during this, these times prior to Exodus 14, Pharaoh's heart's going to get hard and he's going to chase after you. So there's some foretelling of what's going to be happening for Israel. All right, kind of got it. We're all kind of oriented into our place and space. And then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus chapter 14, verse 1, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Fi-Ha-Haroth. I should have totally practiced that before today. We'll edit that out. Uh, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon, and Pharaoh will think. The Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. So just a quick stop there as we look at our story. Notice that God seems to be uh, setting Pharaoh up a little bit. Again, um, Pharaoh setting himself up, God setting Pharaoh up as well. So then when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw Night at the Museum Part 3. It just was released in December. But Sue Ann and I were talking about there's this one clip where the pharaoh just before the exodus is pretendly, you know, having a conversation with Ben Stiller's character. And he's like, well, I'm half Irish, half Jewish. And he's like, you're Jewish. We love the Jews. There we have like a whole bunch of slaves and they're very happy with. And he's actually weren't so happy. And we kind of talk about it every year. So um, there's this little thing like we've lost their services. We're upset that they have left. We had a really great slave force. And now, you know, why did we do this again? So Pharaoh takes his chariot, has it made ready, and he takes his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. 
the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen, and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And I like these little thought, I help, Yahweh help us, save us. Okay. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? This is a funny joke, right? There's lots of graves in Egypt. Like the whole Valley of the Kings is just grave, 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 tomb, 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 right? If anyone grew up thinking, what do you know about Egypt? Like the only Pharaoh's name you know, King Tut. And the only reason why we know his name is because we found his tomb and it had lots of gold in it. So we all talk about that, right? So the Israelites cry out and they're like, how come were there just not enough dead people there? Like not enough places to lay our bones there that you take us out here to die? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. I just wonder if there's a double meaning in that. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the angel of the God who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Let's just stop in the text for a minute there. When's the last time you remember Egypt being in darkness, but Israel being in light? Ninth plague, plague of darkness. What comes right after the ninth plague, the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn? Pharaoh should be sniffing out a little bit of foreboding here, right? Hey, the last time Egypt was in darkness, but Israel had light, we lost a whole bunch of people. And the same is happening again. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed into the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. 
But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and their left. And that day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. They had faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's the end of our reading of chapter 14. The title of today's message is The Miracle of the Sea. Now, a lot of times when we talk about this parting of the Red Sea, we have in mind something pretty amazing, right? And that makes a lot of, of noise, like a giant parting of the Red Sea. And I love this comic. It's like, Moses, make sure you just stop for a second and realize how wildly cool this is, right? Like, yes, we're fleeing from an army. Yes, there's a whole bunch going on. But how phenomenal that the sea has parted and that we're walking through it. If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, at one point as they're walking through, you can see like whales and fish. It's like basically a giant aquarium, right? If if you've ever gone through those tunnel aquariums that everybody wants to walk through and spend lots of money. And I think when we think of this Red Sea parting, what, that's the kind of the awe that we have in our heads. We're just amazed by this crazy thing that happens. And people try to discuss how it could have happened and what kind of wind could have blown and was there a naturalistic explanation for it. But truly, the miracle is that it's that the Lord sends this wind from the east, which biblically speaking, God always comes from the east by the way. It's just a thing in your Bible. Notice. In fact, all maps are oriented east. So the east is north. Like in your mind, east is north. When you look at a map, if you come to my house, you look at a map of Israel, east is that way because that's how we are oriented exactly that to the east. So they say, stop and take a look. There's this amazing thing that's happening, but God is blowing this wind from the east. Now, I like the Prince of Egypt, and it's great. Uh, It's a fantastic, you know, wonderful thing. But what happens, we can't quite see it, is in the Prince of Egypt film, Moses slams his staff down, right? And then the waters start to part. But that's not accurate to the text. All God tells Moses to do is to hold up the staff, just to stretch out his hand. And it's a very important point because what we need to see here is that it's not Moses that is doing this. It is God that is doing it. It's not through the action of that magic staff that Moses happens to carry around. You can imagine that the Israelite kids are like, gee, you touch it, touch the staff. Like, can we, can we go see, can you turn it into a snake? Like, it's, it's not that it's magic. It's not that it has some special powers that if you just happen to pull it out, it's going to do something great for you. Instead, it is that God is acting at this point. Now, as we've been talking about a few weeks ago, I talked about recreation, that God is recreating um, this world, and in part through the plagues, he is decreating it. Do you guys remember from that message that we talked about how each plague is sort of taking what God had ordered and pulling it back into chaos? So now at this point, as we're going to pass through the Red Sea, I'd like to argue that the true miracle at sea is not the parting of the waters, although very cool, and we'd all like to see that. The true miracle at sea is this birth of a nation. And there's all this beautiful imagery that we get to start to see, birth imagery, if you'll look at your text, not only from a theological point, but also from a literary standpoint. Let's just stop for a moment and see what birth language, what birth narrative can we start to see in this story. Well, initially, the amazing thing that we see is the parting of the waters. And when a woman goes into labor, what's one of the first things that the indication she's going into labor Her water breaks. And out, eventually, will come a child. 
And in this imagery that God is going to be using throughout the text, and it's not just here in Exodus, but God willing, we'll show you. It's a little bit all throughout our text. That as God has called Israel his firstborn son, he is now allowing for the birth of his son into this world, the birth of the nation of Israel. Remember what was put over the lentils of the door frames of the Passover homes. Blood. So in this Exodus story, right away with the 10th plague of the Passover, of the the death of the firstborn and the Passover of the Israelite homes, we have blood on the lintels and then Israel coming out and then water. The parting and passing through of the Red Sea makes the nation's first breath out in open air, finally free, redeemed. This is the birth of Israel. This is when Israel becomes a nation in a way it wasn't before. The moment before, there was nothing, but now there's life. And now they begin to put their faith in the Lord. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but throughout our story in our text, throughout our plagues, Israel's a little bit concerned. They're not sure they can trust God. They're not sure they can trust Moses. But at the end of this story, at the end of chapter 14, they stop there and they say, Ah, now we can put our faith, our trust. And and in Hebrew, the word for faith, for emunah, also in Greek, in pistis, never carries with it only the idea of a theological ascension. Ah, okay, now I know he's God. It's not only that. It's not just that you believe really hard. Now they can believe really hard that God is God. But it's that they will now actively, faithfully live for him, actively, faithfully begin to trust him and live into this new thing. That is what is being born at the sea. And that is the miracle. A people that are going to start to trust God. Now, one of the first things you'll say to me is, yeah, but the desert's coming and they're going to grumble and complain the whole time and they're going to have all these trust issues. Sure, first year of marriage is always hard, right? So you always are trying to figure out, can I really trust this person? But this is the beginning of it. This is this first breath that as Israel starts to take its first breath into the nation, this first breath into the world, as God uses this beautiful life-giving imagery, as he does this, he's like, what will their first thing be to do as they come out of the Red Sea? They will begin to worship me. They'll begin to trust me. In fact, there's a beautiful picture as you look at the holy name of God, spelled in Hebrew, yod heh vav heh the holy name of the Lord. That when you say those letters, yod heh vav heh that each letter actually requires some breath. And that as a child is born into this world, that as they start to take in a breath and breathe out again, and they start to take those first cries, that their first breath is innately saying the name of the Lord. yod Hey, vav Hey. And they start to worship God. And that's what Israel is doing. Israel, in this moment, is being born again. It's not that they've never been Israel before. Remember, we even have a guy whose name changes from Jacob to Israel. And he has his 12 sons and they go into Egypt and they have all their descendants. It's not that they weren't that before, but they're being reborn, rebirthed into God's redemptive plan in this world. And when this rebirth happens, as they're being reborn, they are being saved, delivered, redeemed. This is the miracle of the sea. That God is taking a people and saying, you are mine. I am giving you life, life to the full as I redeem and save you. Rescue you out 
of slavery with the Egyptians and pull you into a land where you will begin to know that I am the Lord. After they exit the sea, they're going to sing a beautiful song in Exodus 15. God willing, we'll talk about it next week. And they say, the Lord is reigning forever and ever in this song. They've, they finally come to understand that Pharaoh is not king, that Pharaoh is not Lord God, but that only the Lord himself, yod heh vav is God. He only is king. Now, as we see the story of rebirth, this born again, we can see all these echoes, can't we? We remember back to the creation narrative where God started to speak, where he breathed his spirit, his wind. Remember the word for spirit and wind is the same word in Hebrew. His ruach hovered over the surfaces, the waters of the deep. And as that wind or that spirit hovers, God begins to speak into existence to create. So as we saw the decreation of Egypt's world through the plagues, we are now going to see the recreation of the people of Israel. Now we start to see that echo coming back into Genesis. And then we see it again with with Noah and the flood. You remember we talked about how the waters then covered. And I just want to, for a moment, look through our text and start to grab these pictures of birth, of water, and of blood as we just pull our story all the way through. Because I think the miracle of the sea is that God did this and he continues to do it in amazing and beautiful ways. We see that Noah's teva, Noah's ark, is there surviving the people out of the flood as God really, as Peter will say, baptized the earth through those flood waters. We see that Moses, a redeemer, is pulled out of water, also carried in a teva, in a basket. We see water playing that primary role in this picture, in this story. We see blood coming back into play. Remember that weird thing that Pastor Kevin talked about when he's just like, we just don't know what's going on. And he talked about that circumcision of blood where Zipporah takes a flint knife and God's about to kill either Moses or his son. And we're not sure. And she circumcises one or the other. We're not quite sure. But she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And that language, that blood language starts to come into Moses' story, into the Israelite story. And then we see the water turning into blood, which certainly is an echo back to the lives lost in the Nile. But also this echo of life. Right? Remember when Cain kills Abel and God says to Cain, I can hear your brother's blood crying out from the ground. Blood always carries life with it. As Israel is born and birthed into their new nation, we have this beautiful picture of crossing the waters through the Red Sea. But that's not the last time we're going to have that story in our text. We're going to have it again as Joshua and Israel crosses over the Jordan into the new land, into Israel. And as they do that, what's the first thing that they do after they pass through the, Red, the Jordan River, which is parted for them, was the floodwaters stop up and they pass through on dry land? The first thing they do is they celebrate Passover and they also keep the rite of circumcision. We have this picture again of blood and water finding themselves in that same place. You see, the Bible is very earthy, and it uses the language that everyone is familiar with and the elements that everyone is familiar with. For us, it sounds weird. We're not physical in our world really at all. We like to watch things virtually. We don't really like to go to farms and find out where our food came from. We would prefer it wrapped in plastic, less bloody, not more bloody, all of those things. We're very sanitized in our world. But the ancient Israelites... These Hebrews, this is their story, and this makes sense to them. As Israel is exiled later on into Babylon, 
Isaiah will have this incredible imagery of God birthing out the nation. And he'll talk about who has heard of this before, how a nation can be born one day and then the next, and be alive, and not exist one day and the next day be here. Ezekiel will use this language. He'll use the language of Israel as one being like a baby, crying out, lying in its afterbirth, Ezekiel will talk about, kicking on the side of the road, but that God walked by and breathed life into that Israel and brought Israel back. All of this birth language that God's going to continue to use. And it pushes us all the way into, by the way, the Psalms, the prophets will all use this language and call back on the Red Sea and what God is doing here, birthing a nation, they will say. It pushes us all the way into Matthew. Remember when Jesus is born, by the way, how is he born? He is born of a woman. Do you think it was likely messy? A real birth, right? No one's pretending that somehow Jesus came out glowing and it was just like magic birth, right? It's a real birth. And and this is an important part of our story, that God is both fully human and fully divine, that he is made of human flesh. I always used to tell safari kids, we believe in God and Abad, right? God in human form. And that as Jesus is born in the book of Matthew, it will say, out of Egypt, I called my firstborn son because they will have to flee to Egypt away from Herod and then come back again. And that language, that firstborn son language is calling us back again right into the story of Israel, the deliverance of Israel and the bringing forth of a new nation, a rebirth of being reborn. And all of Israel hearing the story of Jesus born of a woman fully God, fully man, hearing that God called Jesus, his firstborn son, and called him out of Egypt, they would be hearing these echoes back to this Exodus story. In 1 John, it says this, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Water and blood being born of both. And that is what's bringing life. And this language, this literary, beautiful, symbolic language, this earthy Hebrew story is calling us all the way back to Genesis, to Exodus. As we read the story of Jesus, we don't get to just hang out only in Jesus's day. Jesus and his followers all see in Christ the fulfillment And the promises of a new birth. A nation again being reborn. And in this birth of Jesus, of water and blood, of flesh, we see again submersion into water. Jesus goes down into the Jordan. And in that same scene in John, John points at him twice and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we think, oh nice, what a cute fluffy lamb. But the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is the one that will be sacrificed. There will be blood that will flow. And these pictures, these images are all calling out the picture of new life. Nicodemus is confused by all of this. 
Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, we've over-spiritualized that. What do we mean when we see born again? Or if you Google the term, people who are born again, it's like right-wing, radical, crazy, maybe not evangelical Christians, right? But we've, that name is like, oh, I even have um, Israeli friends who will say, oh, they're a born again. And that means something different to them than a, a, another type of Christian or a Catholic, or they just have a variety of terms, like we do too. We've over-spiritualized this. But if we look and we take that phrasing and we sit it back into our narrative, back into our giant story that God is telling from Genesis to Revelation, what story are we seeing? We are seeing a God who is constantly providing opportunities for new life, for new birth. And Jesus is showing up on the scene because this is exactly what he himself is going to do. Through his birth, through his life, and through his death and resurrection. Nicodemus asks, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Remember the word there for spirit also means wind. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And I just wonder if possibly there's a picture there as we think of spirit, wind, ruach, as that east wind, that ruach of God blew and separated those waters. If Jesus isn't leaning back into his story and remembering a God whose spirit blows in such a way as to give new life, as to have people reborn, as to recall again the exodus. The transfiguration, I think, hearkens to this as well in Luke. Two men and Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure. In Greek, it's the word for exodus. They're speaking about his exodus, which he is about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. There's a new exodus coming in Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. There's a new exodus because there's going to be a new birth, a rebirthing again of us, of his people. New opportunity provided to us through the body and the blood of Christ. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says on Passover, as they've all done this, on their lintels, as they've all taken the blood on a hyssop stalk and put it over their door frames of their homes, as they've all sacrificed that Passover lamb that they lived with for four days prior to taking it to the temple, as Jesus celebrates that meal and says, this is my body and this is my blood, the next day as he's placed on the cross, they took a hyssop stalk, according to John, and put a sponge on it and offered it up for Jesus to drink. As he said, I'm thirsty. And that imagery of Passover is coming right back in for the Passover lamb. He bows his head. He gives up his spirit after that. And then the soldiers come, and they're going to come and break the legs of all those there to, in order to hasten their death. But as they come to Jesus, they find that he is already dead. And one of the soldiers pierced Jesus aside with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. 
these powerful images of birth. Even in the midst of death on the cross, we're seeing these life forces that we all need in order to live. We're seeing that here, as blood and water flows, we see death, but a hope for new life. And that's what we find in the resurrection. And we realize through all of this that rebirth is incredibly painful. Being born again is not something that is easy to do. And it comes with it difficult things. For example, the death of all of the Egyptians. Rebirth requires something to die. For us as followers of Jesus, when we choose to be reborn into the person of Jesus, we are choosing to say no and to allow other things to die. We are saying no to that old life and yes to Christ. And in these moments where we see this pain of birth, these pangs of difficult death mixed with life and all of these things together, we realize that God is not as tame as we want him to be. Rebirth is messy. Being born again is messy. It's difficult. It was difficult for Israel. It will be difficult for us. Rebirth is difficult, but there is life here. And I'm reminded of that wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia, where Lucy asked Beaver, is he safe, as they're talking about Aslan, who's the Christ figure. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And when we look at these moments in our text and we see Wow, how wonderful. From this side of the Red Sea, we were set free. Israel is born. A nation is created. But from the other side of the Red Sea, there's death and loss. But God loves the Egyptians too, and there's also potential for life for them. A lot of times, as we look at the story of the Red Sea, we like to say, well, where's my personal pharaoh And what's my personal Egypt that I've been stuck in? And so we ask ourselves these questions like, how do we now live? As I read this story, as I see this constancy of God, as I look forward to the new life given to me in Jesus Christ through his resurrection, as I look forward through to Revelation chapter 21 with the new heavens and the new earth and new water, by the way, a new garden that is all there, something beautiful and good. No sea, because there's no chaos, but a river of life. We often can trivialize what it is that we're looking at. Martin Berber, Israeli Jewish philosopher, defines the parting of the Red Sea as a moment of abiding astonishment that no knowledge, no cognition can weaken. That when we see these moments of birth, When we see God taking hold of a nation and saying, you are mine, you are my firstborn son, and I've called you to be a light in this world, and I'm going to give you life. I'm going to pull you out of the tombs and out of the graves of Egypt and bring you to a land of life. We should sit with that wonder, not at the parting of the Red Sea only, yes, very cool, but at the wonder of a God that would continue to give us opportunity for new life. 
that would continue to grab us out of places of death and pull nations forward, pull Israel forward into this world for his purposes of bringing life to all of us. Remember what happened when Israel saw all that God did at the Red Sea. They feared God and they had faith in him. That's what needs to happen when we read these stories. A sense of fear, a sense of awe. Maybe we've read it too often. Maybe we've seen Charlton Heston do it too many times. Maybe we've seen the cartoons too frequently. There is something awe-inspiring in what God is doing here. And it's that he's giving his people a mission. He's bringing and breathing that wind of life back onto them again. Peter ends, a Christian theologian says it this way, the Exodus story is not a pep talk for when we go through trying circumstances to teach us that God will win our battles for us. If anything, it's a pep talk to remind us that God has done the battle. He's already won it. That's the pep talk. And so now we are to say, we are not to say, what am I going through that is like Israel's Egypt experience? But instead we should say, my Egypt is behind me and I'm on the other side of the sea. So now, how am I expected to live? We have been set free. Those of us who've placed our trust in Jesus, we have been set free. We are on this side of the prison. We are on this side of those doors. We have been released. We have been set free. John says, and Jesus says this in John chapter 5, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death into life. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. John 8. We have been set free. This has already happened. So now how do we live? Will we, with great joy, start to sing the song of the sea? like the Israelites did in Exodus 15, like Miriam and the prophetess and her sisters did as they picked up their timbrels and danced and sang? Will we sit on this side of our prison doors and say, the sun has set me free. I have been reborn. Second Corinthians. If anyone, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. You have been reborn. You have a full chance at life in a way we've never had it before. And Jesus standing now, standing now as God's firstborn son, calls us, gives us new life, lets us be born again. And we have the opportunity for something that we didn't have the opportunity for the moment before. The moment Jesus dies on the cross, and then is resurrected into new life and sets us free from death forever, from sin forever. Now, this doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Right after this, right after the birth of Egypt, of of Israel out of Egypt, right after that birth of Israel out of Egypt, they will complain. This life that we live is not without difficulties. All of the disciples had their issues. The early church had its issues. People were lying to the disciples, struck dead right there. You know, that's never happened here at Spark, but, you know, careful. So all of these things, people are still participating in things that don't give us life. But the good news of the story of God is that we are looking forward to a new creation that is also to come. 
And as we are trying to live into the truth of that reality, how do we now live on this side of the sea? How do we now live on this side of the fact that we've been set free forever? How do we live knowing that looking forward, we are seeing a new creation? Us and the thing that God is bringing. We get to start bringing that miracle to everyone we meet. How many of us, as we look into our lives, only will say, well, see, that person disappointed me that one time and that's it. And we keep maybe even, let's say, in, you know, marriage relationships, reminding our beloved other of the thing that they did that was wrong 16 years ago that they can't ever move forward on. And we don't allow the possibility of rebirth. We don't allow the possibility of something to be born again. But some of us have sat on this side of the grace of Jesus, on this side of the love of Christ, on this side of the hope, and we've said, I have been given so much grace. I have been given so much mercy. I have been given so much love. All I can do is look at you and extend that same goodness and grace and mercy back. And it's hard, and, and I'll fail at that. But when we sit with the miracle of the sea, which is not the beautiful, wonderful parting of the water only, but it's this picture of birth. When we sit with that story that Jesus has been telling over and over and over and over again throughout all of history, then we can sit knowing that again and again coming, we will be able to extend that new birth to others, allow others to have that place of being reborn because we get to experience that every day in the person of Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. How will we now live? Let's pray. God, what an amazing God you are. This beautiful birth that you provide in your text. This amazing nation that you call forth and create and fashion. And as you call Israel, God, we see in their story your continuous love and grace and mercy, your salvation and your redemption and your deliverance in our own lives. We see that on this side of the cross, after blood and water flowed, that we too have been set free. And that as a people of God, we have been called to see that new life be brought into this world that we live in. When we see death, when we see pain, when we see brokenness, we need not fear for you are the God of resurrection. And you look into those places where there are graves and you call out life. And it's born again. The old has gone, the new has come. We have all crossed over from death unto life. And Jesus, I pray today that may it be true for all in this room and for all that we know that we live into the truth of this beautiful life that you have given us, Jesus. This amazing love that you've poured out upon your creation, allowing us forgiveness and deliverance over and over and over again, calling us into the mission of your great goodness and truth to share your love and your hope in this world. Jesus, may we live differently because of the miracle you did at the sea. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.